Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for joining us from wherever you are around the world. Here we are in the depths or the heights of August and still reflecting, making sense of things, having a laugh making bread, running, whatever. Uh, Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, Let me tell you what I'm going to be doing today or we're going to be doing together. Uh, Later on, some fantastic questions on a whole range of different issues from politicians who are in the wrong party, that one's ongoing, to many other different things. Before then, if it's okay with you, I'm going to reflect more on Prime Ministers We Never Had. Uh, My book on this theme is out in the first week in September. You can pre-order it now. If you pre-order from Waterstones, you can get a signed copy. I'll put the link for that on the blurb uh, for um, the podcast, wherever you get the podcast. And um, yeah, that would be great uh, if you pre-order and get the signed copy or you can order it or pre-order it from all the usual range of things. While we're on this uh, topic, I'm going to be taking a break from the podcast for a couple of weeks after this one. Uh, So you can make this one last for a long time or you can listen back to past ones. It's, It's odd, I was looking back at the podcast we've all sort of taken part in together. And because the aim is to kind of contextualize and explain and not just kind of respond frenetically to whatever the immediate peg of a podcast might be. Uh, they do have curiously kind of timeless quality. They kind of you can listen back if you're going to miss the podcast for a couple of weeks. Then I'll be back in um, the first, well, it'll be kind of around that bank holiday period for England. I know it's not applicable in Scotland Uh, and uh, so kind of but the key thing is if you subscribe you'll get it and then I'll tell you what we'll be doing in that one uh, then but I'm just going to take the next uh, couple of weeks off uh, and chill man isn't that the word but before then uh, let's continue where we left off last week if it's okay with you last week I was looking at there's a lot of stuff around at the moment about Rishi Sunak the tensions with Johnson and all the rest of it and no doubt we will be exploring them regularly in the autumn when kind of the new political year starts oh yeah just one other plug before I get going on that the new political year begins in September you know the build-up to the party conferences everyone back from their holidays Uh, And I'm going to be doing a couple of uh, live shows. September the 12th, that's the Sunday evening in Greenwich at the Greenwich Theatre. And on September the 13th, live at King's Place. For that one, if you live miles away, you can book a stream of that as well, a stream ticket. But live, back in grown-up theatres, you know, like the olden days. And at the start of the political year is always a fascinating time because although... August is quiet or seemingly quiet. Things take shape and September never feels quite the same as July. Things have changed or solidified or anyway, things will be very interesting. So it'd be great if you can come along. We'll have some fun and go deep, delve deep. Uh, On the 12th at the Greenwich Theatre, 13th, that's the Monday night at King's Place, and tickets available now on the website of those respective institutions. Now, Prime Ministers we never had. Yes, Sunak I was looking at. Is he the next Prime Minister? And it was fascinating to look back at the number of Chancellors who don't become Prime Minister 
and the reasons for it. That's what we did last week. I cited Dennis Healy and Roy Jenkins as two examples of chancellors who got so close or seemed to get so close, who were always talked about as a potential next prime minister, sometimes feverishly, and yet neither seized the crown. And of course, I could have talked about others. Uh, Ken Clark being another classic example, regarded as a highly successful chancellor, uh, very popular, never sees the crown. Why? Well, that's what we kind of looked at last week. Now, I'm going to discuss with you the criteria I've applied in the book about who makes the sort of dubious honour, the ambiguous honour of the list of prime ministers we never had. There are 11 in 10 chapters. So two of the prime ministers we never had are in one chapter. Can you guess who they are? Anyway, that's for another week. But um, the criteria is very strict. As I said last week, it's not about the best prime ministers we never had because that is completely subjective you know it's a kind of egotistical exercise uh, and that's the problem quite often when this game is played on the radio and phone-ins and so on people just phone in with whoever they think is great you know I remember uh, Matt Chorley doing it on Times Radio and people phone in and say, oh yeah, yeah Matt I think it should be George Osborne he would have been great you know what about Paddy Ashdown and all the rest of it uh, it just becomes silly uh, so mine is much more an investigation about individuals who at one point or another were seen as a likely next prime minister and, crucially, had the chance to be so. They are the two criteria, um, that they were widely perceived as a likely next prime minister and, crucially, had the chance to seize the crown. And then it becomes an investigation as to why they didn't make it. And it, it, it is very interesting with some common lessons, I think, some unique to each of the individuals, that uh, remarkable arc from being close to the very top and then the fall when they failed to seize the crown. But that means some who often are cited in lists of prime ministers we never had don't make the cut uh, for the book. And I want to give you some examples because this in itself is interesting given there is so much speculation, so much of the time about who will be the next Prime Minister. As we discussed last week, it's around Rishi Sunak at the moment. Um, so here are some who don't make the cut, who were often cited. From the Tory side, William Hague is often seen as a Prime Minister we never had. And on some levels, you can see why. Uh, he is, in my view, weightier and more thoughtful and reflective than either David Cameron or Boris Johnson, two who have become uh, Prime Minister. And you can see that in his column writing. He has the capacity to develop his thinking. He's become more of an interventionist, recognising that this era demands a more active state. And that's quite an interesting journey from someone who um, was, in effect, a Thatcherite and a dry Eurosceptic. He famously is a brilliant speaker, he's witty and all the rest of it. Um, however, he never had the chance to be Prime Minister. 
he met one qualification he was leader of the opposition and when you think about it that is one of the criteria for becoming a prime minister you've got to fight an election where you're leader of the opposition and if you win you become prime minister and if you're not leader of the opposition and fight an election from opposition or indeed from within government you're not going to be the next prime minister there are exceptions to this john major wasn't a leader of the opposition theresa may wasn't the conservatives are in power so often there are sometimes transfers within the governing party same with jim callahan uh, in 1976 for labor but being leader of the opposition helps and haig was one However, when he was one between 1997 and 2001, there was not a moment when either he or anyone else thought he would win the next election. Uh, Labour were often miles ahead in the polls throughout that entire period. And Haig's sole objective was to keep the show on the road, to try and make some gains in an election, or certainly, he's spoken about this, to avoid an even further reversal in the 2001 election. They'd already been slaughtered in 97. Uh, And he actually really didn't achieve the former of making many gains. They picked up a handful of seats. And then he resigned. So there was not, um, and it resigned in very interesting circumstances in that for Haig then all ambition to be Prime Minister was spent. He never felt the urge, the need, the addiction for the top job. Uh, far from it. He was quite reluctant to come back to the front line under Cameron and became Foreign Secretary but then announced he was going to leave that post voluntarily as well. Um, Haig went on to learn the piano, write books, make a fortune as an after-dinner speaker. Very interesting example of uh, politics, really, because when Haig was leader of the Tory party, uh, people were indifferent to him and didn't listen to his speeches with any great enthusiasm. The moment he left and became this sort of TV celebrity on Have I Got News For You, Ed Bull-style kind of celebrity, people paid £30,000 to hire him as an after-dinner speaker, more sometimes. Um, That's the way it goes in politics. But he didn't want to be Prime Minister and never had the chance. Now, if you don't have the chance, you don't qualify in my book, which is an investigation as to why those who did have the chance failed to seize the crown. Another name that comes up very often is Alan Johnson, who's kindly endorsed the book. And it's great to have that endorsement because Alan Johnson has become, amongst other things, a wonderful writer. Uh, His books are fantastic. Um, And many people say, oh, yeah, yeah, he's the one. He's the prime minister we never had. But there was never a moment uh, when it was possible or likely. Alan Johnson himself didn't really seek the post of leader. Uh, He never stood in a leadership contest. And you do have to stand in a leadership contest to become leader. He did stand in the deputy leadership contest in 2007, and he didn't win. That was Harriet Harman's victory. Uh, He then became briefly Ed Miliband's shadow chancellor, but left that post, wanted to, uh, didn't feel comfortable in it and never pursued 
the leadership, even though when Ed Miliband got into trouble, uh, some in Labour, Alistair Campbell, others talked about Alan Johnson becoming the leader. And he clearly had this great capacity to engage and was also an experienced cabinet minister. But he didn't seek it. He didn't want it. And as a result, Alan Johnson doesn't qualify. He might have been a brilliant prime minister, we'll never know, but he never had the chance. He wasn't in a feasible position to seize the crown, and therefore there is no investigation to make. He wasn't a leader, didn't stand for a leadership contest, uh, and certainly was not in a position when they were in power to seize the crown uh, as a cabinet minister with a prime minister being ousted. Uh, so great though he might have been, he doesn't make the list. And that applies to two uh, women as well, um, Margaret Beckett and Harriet Harman. Uh, they too, both of them in very different ways, might have been great prime ministers. We'll never know. But they never had the chance. Uh, Margaret Beckett was, uh, of course, acting leader uh, when John Smith died suddenly in 1994. Um, but the only question in the summer of 1994, when the leadership contest got underway, was whether it was going to be Blair or Brown. And when Blair stood, uh, Margaret Beckett did not have a chance of becoming leader of the opposition, which is a precondition to becoming prime minister. And that was the only real opportunity. So I think she would have been uh, a really formidable Prime Minister in many ways, because she had such range and depth. She became, under Blair, a Foreign Secretary. She was, in the 1970s and early 80s, absolutely of the left. So she went on an interesting political journey. And what has impressed me a lot with Margaret Beckett in interviews is that she does, a bit like we do in the podcast, she always provides a bit of context when she's on, talking about some latest kind of feverish drama going on, you know, and you will hear various political editors on broadcasting outlets report as if something has erupted from nowhere, a vacuum. And she will say you know, this is the situation compared with, say, the early 80s or the late 70s or something, because she has that experience and range, but she never had the chance. And obviously, when um, Blair became leader, she became a loyal cabinet minister and, say, rose to foreign secretary to her own surprise. And Harriet Harman, it was a great triumph of hers to win the deputy leadership contest. That that was a formidable battle. Not only Alan Johnson in there, Peter Hayne, Hilary Benn and others, she won. Um, but a kind of sign of her own sense of self was that she didn't insist on Gordon Brown giving her the deputy prime minister title that John Prescott got when he was a deputy. And she didn't stand. The, the, the chance she had might have been in 2010 uh, when she was acting leader Labour had lost but she didn't stand and I think she has said occasionally she regrets it but she didn't do that basic task I have no idea whether she would have won Ed Miliband won I suspect that still might have happened if she had stood but therefore she never had the opportunity a feasible opportunity to be Prime Minister so she doesn't make the list, uh, you know, the ambiguous honour of making the list of prime ministers we never had.
had. Yeah, did, had. The prime ministers we never had. Who who made the cut? There are various ways you can probably find out on uh, the websites where you can pre-order the book. But I will be talking about them when we all gather together at the next uh, podcast in a couple of weeks' time, if that's okay with you. Um, those who were prime minister, uh, prime ministers we never had, and why. Uh, oh, by the way, yeah, another a couple of people who often come up are Hugh Gateskill and John Smith, rightly, uh, because they too could well have been formidable prime ministers. But we know the sad answer as to why they never made it. Uh, they both, of course, died uh, young, uh, while in post of leader of the opposition. So they don't make the cut because there is no mystery. I want to explore a mystery in this book about these prime ministers who had a chance and failed to seize the crown. Why? When some were arguably more qualified than those who did seize the crown. And in the case, uh, there are a couple of other examples. Ian MacLeod, I think, uh, Heath's first chancellor, then died suddenly very shortly after the June 1970 election. Changed the course of that government, I think. But we know the reason why MacLeod didn't get it in the same way we know the reasons why Gateskill and Smith didn't get it. And it's the saddest one of the lot, but we know, so they don't make the cut either. So who does? Well, I'll be reflecting on that in a couple of weeks' time, but please do pre-order and say via Waterstone's website you can get a signed copy. Now, after those uh, reflections on prime ministers we never had who don't make the cut, um, onto your questions. Some of your questions are on this theme, but there are some great variety, fantastic uh, questions. And by the way, do keep them coming in. You know, we've got to stay in touch during these uh, epic times, um, even if I'm away for the next week or so. Uh, so I'll give you, oh yeah, why don't I do that now? I'll give you the email address. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, what is it? I always kind of, I just, you know, I still don't know this email address off by heart. Uh, here it is. Uh, there we go. Um, it's iCloud something, isn't it? Um, I'll give it to you in a minute. I can't find the damn thing. Here it is. Here, it, I can't find it. Um, yeah, Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. And I've given that address about kind of 19 minutes in for those of you running. So, you know, when you finish all your excursions, 90 minutes in, make a note of the email and send me your points on premises we never had or anything else that is erupting around us uh, this strange August, this curious you know, are we out of the pandemic or about to go back in it, etc., etc. Questions whirling. Meanwhile, to your brilliant questions for this week. First of all, from Maggie Fletcher. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you know, sort of with England, you know, getting to the final of the European Championship, uh, I was reflecting on the link between football and politics. I was arguing personally, I think the link is completely overhyped and exaggerated. Anyway, Maggie Fletcher writes, on the link between football and politics, I can only uh, offer the following 
anecdote. My first experience of canvassing was in the Leeds Northwest constituency in 1970, pushing to get the vote out on the evening of the election in areas that were Labour strongholds. People came to the door irritated by the fact that we were interrupting their viewing of a World Cup match. Not England, of course, who were out of the competition by then. But people were still eagerly following the matches. It was evident when the vote was counted that many Labour voters who said they had voted had not. I wonder if that was replicated across the country. How interesting. So it's a kind of tangential link really isn't it it's not uh, an argument that england doing well and people vote but just the draw of football as such and the limited interest in politics in parts of this country meant that they were just sitting there watching the games rather than going out to vote um as i've said many times wilson never got over the shock of losing that election uh, now, talking of which, uh, Maggie Fletcher goes on to write, Finally, as evidence of changing times, I had a holiday job on the Isles of Scilly in the summer of 64 after my A-levels. On a wet Sunday afternoon, I was trying to make a phone call from a public call box when I realised that the man standing waiting his turn was Harold Wilson. He became Prime Minister a few months later. Isn't that an astonishing image? A leader of the opposition soaring in the polls. I assume he was soaring if he became Prime Minister a few months later. Uh, yeah, he was, although he only just won in 64. Waiting to make a phone call from a phone box in the Isles of City, where, of course, Wilson went for his holidays every summer. Thank you for that. I, it is an extraordinary image of a different era. Oh, yeah. By the way, on the Harold Wilson front, uh, there's some great stuff on YouTube um, of interviews with Wilson. There's one uh, from Thames Television uh, during the February 1974 election uh, for a programme called This Week, I think. Um, it goes on for about 25 minutes. And it's interesting because Wilson, uh, you know, I was far too young to remember, but was seen as tired and pretty uh, useless by February 74. Many people, including him, I think, thought they were going to lose that election. Watch that interview. It's a model of how to do an interview uh, in, in a tricky context for a Labour leader who many thought was about to lose that election. Um, he still had it um, in February 74 and beyond. Uh, that's it for... Wilson, on the Wilson front. Uh, Dominique Jewell writes from uh, Normandy in France, saying, I've heard five respected commentators from various points on the political spectrum express the belief that the Conservatives will almost certainly win the next general election. Matthew Paris seemed to sum up this opinion for all when he said that Johnson just needs to make people feel that little bit richer. There was also general agreement that Johnson's dishonesty, unreliability, ruthlessness and narcissism has been and will continue to be overlooked at the ballot boxes. Whilst I agree with your assertion that most voters only turn their attention to matters political when a general election is looming, with the implication that the rock and roll politics community are somewhat in the Anorak Brigade in this regard, we're wholly unrepresentative of anything, us lot, you know. In August, here we are, still hooked. But it is so bloody addictive, isn't it? 
we're right to be hooked. Anyway, back to Dominica. I really find it hard to believe, depressing in fact, that the British voting public is primarily or only concerned with the health of its bank balance. What are your thoughts on this? Specifically, what would need to happen to dislodge the Conservatives from power? given that their handling of the current pandemic seems to have made no dent in popularity at all. By the way, much as I look forward to your weekly podcast, aren't you due for a break? Well, thank you, Dominica. Very thoughtful of you and prophetic, because I'm going to take a short break. On the wider point, first of all, assumptions about the next election need to be taken with a pinch of salt. Commentariat assumptions are nearly always wrong in the build-up to the 2017 election. I read uh, columns um, in the Times and Guardian and elsewhere predicting a absolute slaughter for Labour and a landslide victory for Theresa May. It didn't happen. We just don't know. But it is. it usually does take something pretty big to dislodge Conservative governments. Uh, in 1992, it was Britain falling out of the exchange rate mechanism, an event with so many epic consequences to do with Europe and the Conservative Party and the economy, although it actually helped the economy, um, that the Conservatives were never ahead in the polls again up to the 97 election. It might not take something quite like that this time. We just don't know. Uh, but I still think, although this is increasingly unfashionable, uh, that how people are feeling in terms of their economic situation is crucial. There is a theory now, as you know, ID, identity politics and all this much more important. People don't care about economic factors. I just don't believe it. Uh, now, on to this game we're playing. I think it was invented by Scott uh, Crosswell, uh, who writes... Sorry, Scott, is it Cresswell? Uh, my uh, handwriting uh, or printing it, it might have got that. Your epically legendary surname wrong your legendary because you i think propose the idea what politicians are in the wrong party anyway scott says i know he's unfortunately not with us anymore but what about edward heath after losing the leadership he was very critical of the thatcher major hague leaderships and at one point was thinking about joining the sdp and also according to philip ziegler who wrote heath's biography was very sympathetic to tony blair's pro-europeanism that's a really good one. Uh, Heath hated the Thatcherite Tory party. He unquestionably hated her for all kinds of reasons, uh, partly that she removed him and then won elections big in a way that he never did, um, but partly ideologically. He really did despise her uh, form of politics and therefore was really in some respects in the wrong party as Thatcherism took over to his despair the Conservative Party and Euroscepticism. He was definitely in the wrong party. He would have been wholly at ease with Roy Jenkins in the SDP or whatever, but former leaders and prime ministers don't really leave parties. Uh, Tony Blair, I'm sure, under the Corbyn era, was quite excited by the idea of formations of a new party, but he never got directly involved. Uh, Labour leaders tend to remain Labour, Tory leaders tend to remain Tory, but it's a good example. Heath was wholly at odds in the Thatcher era with the Tory party. Uh, from Julie Frew in the great Bridport in uh, Dorset, by the way, she said, eating dinner on Monday night whilst listening. That's a cool combination. Um, 
on your podcast, you mentioned your new book. Yes, I've pre-ordered it. Hurrah! Thank you, Julie. And in passing said that you restricted your consideration of the Prime Ministers we never had to those people who would have could have become PMs. Yeah, very strict criteria. Uh, those of your favourite people who never stood a chance you've left out. Very understandable. But this begs the question, who are these favourite people? I realise these people might not even be involved in politics, um, so I can hear the purists groaning, but please give us a flavour of who you mean. Well, yeah, I mean, they would definitely be involved in politics. You, you know, you can't go into, like, Trump suddenly arrive in Washington and, and hail the fact that you have no experience of uh, politics. I'm going to resist uh, the temptation, uh, Judy, because simply because... For me, uh, there's a sort of kind of weird pointlessness to it. I mean, I think the prime ministers we never had who made it to the book, I think some of them would have been really, really good. And all of them would have been interesting if they had made it to uh, number 10. So I think that's kind of enough to be getting on with because it's quite a range of people. I'll be talking about them in a couple of weeks' time. And to go beyond that, it's, it gets a bit silly because, you know, you could argue um, that, well, I've talked about it already, you know, Margaret Beckett would have been good, but she doesn't meet the criteria. So there's an example. I think Alan Johnson could have been really good uh, for Labour. And I think Haig would have been a better Prime Minister than Cameron, May and... Uh, the current occupant in number 10. So there, if, if it's okay with you, Julie, I, I will leave it with those examples. And they, none of them stood a chance, so they don't make it into the the final cut. Uh, Joey Ward, he says he uh, listens while climbing walls on in London gyms. Be careful, Joey, because this podcast gets really exciting at times. I wouldn't want you to slip um, while you're climbing the walls. Um, he says, I think Corbyn may have been less wooden, less evasive if he hadn't had to defend himself against the charges of being anti-Semitic, uh, saving me several unproductive uh, news cycles to keep track of. In short, we'd be better off worrying less about the state of our politicians' souls. In other words, you know, it, this debate that has happened regularly on the podcast was or is Corbyn anti-Semitic um, and more about the actual acts they perform while wielding power or potential power on our behalf um, so yeah I, it is these these questions you know about what does someone believe x y or z uh, someone mentioned it last week is Boris Johnson a racist all you can do is make judgments on external factors um, and you're right you cannot go within um, you just have to make judgments on an individual's conduct. And some people who listen to the podcast have formed a view that Corbyn is anti-Semitic. I and others have formed the view that he isn't. But it is interesting to go within a politician. Is you know, it's the great politics is is psychological. I think psychiatrists should follow politics very closely. Um, and I try and go within and try and work out what people are thinking at any given time. But you don't know for sure because you're not them. Uh, you, you're delving deep on those wall climbing excursions, Joey. Uh, Steve Smith. 
I recall that in Harold Nicholson's diaries, I think in the 1945 to 1962 volume, this is, we're back to the game of politicians and parties, there's an entry mentioning him uh, being uh, visited by a young man named Reginald Maudling, who intends to enter politics and is seeking advice on whether to join Labour or the Conservatives. It's not in the index, so can't pin it down. But that's, uh, that kind of conversation could well have happened. It rings true. Nicholson himself, Steve writes, was an interesting case regarding parties. Yeah, he went, yeah, Mosley's new new party was a great fan of Mosley at one point um, before it became kind of overtly fascist. He won election to Parliament as a national Labour candidate. Yeah, he was that uh, supported. I didn't realise he was supported by the West Leicester Conservative Association. Um he stood for Labour as a in a post-war by-election. Yeah, Nicholson is a fascinating person. His diaries, by the way, are great. If you want some August reading, uh, his diaries are really good. Uh, but Reginald Maudling became a Tory Chancellor and stood for the Tory leadership. He doesn't make the cut because uh, he lost, never became leader of the opposition. Um, but he became quite a formidable Tory politician. Um, and it is interesting. This happens. Nick Clegg used to have conversations with Leon Britton uh, in Europe, where Leon Britton tried to encourage Clegg to join the Tories. So these, and some would say that um, he sort of did. Uh, so, you know, these things are very can be fluid. Um, and that's an interesting example. Yeah, Nicholson's diaries, they're great. Uh, he's a brilliant writer, of course. Um, Venetia Kane. Oh, yeah, now, Venetia was rushed to the uh, emergency department uh, and guess what she did whilst recuperating hope you're okay Venetia came best wishes for all of us lot um, so I decided to spend the free time in the afternoon lying on my bed with you plugged into my ears uh, yes you sent me to sleep in the nicest way thank you well there we go that's a sort of ambiguous compliment um, I've now caught up and much look forward to the second of your special theme podcasts on prime ministers we never had I'll be home by then um, well uh, that's great uh, concentrate on the singing um, yeah because um, uh, Venetia was singing I think when this drama happened and but she's back singing so that's great uh thrilled that the podcast guided you through in the sense that uh it sent you to sleep um this is ambiguous as making the cut for prime ministers we never have but brilliant thank you very much for keeping us informed uh venetia i say i hope you're feeling better james dowley a huge fan of the podcast oh thank you james although i this is interesting you see uh, this community is what Harold Wilson used to call, in re relation to the Labour Party, a broad church. He says, although I guess I'm in a minority of your listeners, being a massively pro-Brexit, ex-UKIP and Brexit Party member, uh, you were having a discussion about defections and how they rarely work, examples being the Change UK MPs and those like uh, Philip Lee and others who went to the Lib Dems, in their, that case from the Tory party. Yeah, yeah, they, disaster for all of them. From the Labour side, total disaster. You know, the where are they now thing with Chukka, Umana and all of them. 
but James then says, going back 20 years, I would offer up Sean Woodward as one of the most successful defections in recent political history. He switched to Labour in the early Blair years after a row with William Haig on gay rights. Despite protestations from the Tories for him to fight a by-election, he refused and then found a safe Labour seat in St Helens in the 2001 election, incidentally allowing one David Cameron to win the vacated seat of Whitney. Good, yeah, consequences in politics. As someone who had a butler and a chauffeur, I'm not sure what the folks of St Helens made of him, but he forged a career under Blair and Brown and made it to the Cabinet as Northern Ireland Secretary. Yeah, now this is it's a really interesting example, Sean Woodward, on lots of levels. One, it tells you a bit about New Labour. Blair and Brown ached for defections. It was a sign of their seriousness of purpose they thought that they could attract conservatives that you know this party that won elections with their eyes closed were going to labor and sean woodward they did regard or blair did as a particular coup sean woodward had run the 1992 tory election campaign and uh, brown too wanted to show uh, the symbolic significance of Woodward and uh, gave him a cabinet post and uh, spoke a lot to Woodward about tactics and strategy. So it worked and yet and yet I bumped into Sean Woodward on in Westminster on the night his defection had been announced and we were walking along, I'll never forget it, and Damien Green who is a nice person and was a friend of Woodward's on the Tory benches uh, he was walking towards us and Sean Woodward said oh hello Damien and uh, he Damien Green walked right past him didn't utter a word um, the sense of betrayal accompanying defections is huge and he was never wholly comfortable in the Labour Party even though I say Blair and Brown loved the symbolism of defection and it is a potent it is a potent symbol if de defections happen in the build-up to the next election, follow the traffic where where they're going from and to. They tell you quite a lot. Uh, thank you for that. Good point. And welcome to this very broad church. Yeah, well, welcome. You've been listening for some time, James, I think, but thrilling. Uh, we'll have a discussion about Brexit one of these days. Uh, Jonathan Smith from Edinburgh. Uh, enjoyed the first August music on PMs we never had. Thank you. Uh, and have watched uh, the BBC talks on the theme many times. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Yeah, um, the origins of the book were some uh, improvised BBC talks. Uh, now that the effects of the EU treating the UK as a third party are biting harder, uh, the question of how much of this would happen to any existing exiting member and how much is due to UK bad faith hostility is fascinating and made me contemplate whether the bad faith and hostility would be inevitable for a country which had found itself out of step with the EU or whether it's a very British problem. Good question, Jonathan. I think it's both. I think the uh, UK machismo as represented by David Frost, Frosty, Frosty, is a big part of the problem. But you're right, if you leave uh, 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 the EU, there are going to be huge tensions. And the UK, so much of it was unresolved when Boris Johnson pretended that Brexit was done. Those tensions were going to be there, whatever. 
as an exiting country. And that would apply if France wanted to leave, if Poland wanted to leave, um, but it's heightened by Frosty's negotiating style, which is naive in its machismo, in, in my view. Although um, our previous emailer, James, passionate Brexiteer, will probably disagree. Do you, do you agree, James, with Frosty's approach? Is Union Jack socks and, you know, telling the EU to get off uh, in a, well, it doesn't quite say it like that. Um, okay, thank you. Andrea Valentino writes, um, I've been wanting to ask a question for a while, and your comments on prime ministers we never had finally sparked one. As you've noted in the past, one of the great strengths of 20th century parliaments was how politicians who failed in their quest to become PM, Healy, Ben, Foote, or else prime ministers who lost the top job, notably Heath and indeed Churchill, still stayed in politics, offering advice, probing their successors, and generally providing a bit of gravitas to the commons. Yeah, absolutely. That was a key, I think, to the weightiness of the commons in the 20th century. Despite some honourable exceptions, this attitude seems to have disappeared. Blair, Cameron, Osborne and David Miliband all scarpered after things turned against them. My question, therefore, is this. Is there a way for politicians to be induced to stay on even after failure? Would a carrot approach work, higher wages for backbench MPs, for instance, or a stick approach, preventing departing MPs from taking on lucrative roles in the private sector? Um, yeah, this is a really good question. Before I uh, answer it, uh, Andrea says, P.S., if you want to add to the international flavour of the podcast, I'm writing to you from my flat in Queens, New York. Yeah, not quite as exotic as some of your correspondents. I'd say this is pretty damned exotic, Andrea, Queens, New York. But at least the state of politics here makes me feel slightly des less despondent about how things are back in Britain. Yeah, you've had that big shift in the US, Andrea. Um, we, we are still struggling big time. Good, good questions. Um, we do need former cabinet ministers, former prime ministers to stay in the House of Commons uh, because they know things, they've experienced things, but they all bugger off, or most of them, or a lot of them. Now, sometimes it's not their fault. Uh, I can understand, for example, why David Miliband went. It was just unbearable for him. Uh, with Ed as leader for, on lots of different levels. Some lose their seats, like Ed Balls, but some just do go for the private sector and hire money and they, you know, they're bored. They, they wanted to be a minister or prime minister. They got that and then they bugger off. I think both are needed, actually. Higher wages for MPs and the stick approach. It's too easy to do the sort of Cameron thing of uh, becoming almost like a lobbyist with your old mates uh, in the cabinet, um, you know, texting Rishi and others. And of course, it's powerful because if you've been a former prime minister, former leader, these ministers, even though they sort of, you could see they were trying to keep clear of Cameron, they feel obliged to connect. And so I think some of the, the constraints should be much higher on former prime ministers and cabinet ministers. Yeah, pay them more as MPs, but we need them there in the House of Commons. This current House of Commons is, is light. It's not weighty. We need big figures. We need more charisma in there. You know, we want fascinating people to talk about, but also to act as our guides. And um, we're trying to guide ourselves, aren't we, on this podcast through the storms. Um, 
we could do with some help sometimes. Anyway, thank you for that and have a good time in New York. Uh, I think that's a cool location to be listening. Um, and, and, and write more often. And yeah, get hold of the book. You're like, you, I think you might find it interesting, Andrea. Anyway, uh, Karen Trevain uh, writes, this is Karen from uh, Mill Hill and now Berlin. You know what I mean? We're global. Berlin, from New York to Berlin. I've been been watching you for many years and now listen to two of your podcasts. We'll be binge listening to the rest. Oh, that's great, Karen. So your August is sorted, even if I do take this little break of a week or so. Um, yeah, oh yeah. She says she gets very frustrated that a program such as Dateline is only given half an hour just as the conversation develops. It's time to sign off. That's a program I take part in sometimes, which is on BBC World and BBC News 24. It is so frustrating and it's such an easy thing. Those you know, army of BBC managers hold meetings where they exchange banalities. A very simple thing would be to let conversations breathe a bit just every now and again and you'd get a a bigger and more appreciative audience. I think, you know, politicians, they're scared of number 10. I think they would like it anyway. Uh, with regard to who could be the next leader, I wanted to ask you about Michael Gove. Apart from his marriage issues, he seemed to have gone threateningly quiet. I think he's gone quiet because of the marriage issues for now, Karen. I don't think it's a threat as such. Whilst wishing desperately that uh, Bojo could be toppled, uh, do you expect Gove to make a move when all the recriminations about how COVID uh, was tackled hit the fan? I'm not sure. I think Michael Gove has always been ambiguous about leadership, sometimes wanting it. He stood twice, so clearly he's wanted it. But sometimes having doubts about whether he really did think he would enjoy it and be up to it. And I think that ambiguous theme is still there. Um, but um, he's always worth watching. I mean, he's he 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 was a player with Cameron, then fell out with Cameron. Uh, Theresa May didn't put her in the cabinet, then put him in the cabinet, and you know he stabbed Boris Johnson, but now is a senior player in Johnson's cabinet. Um, so yeah, you need to keep an eye on him from Berlin, uh, Michael Gove. Uh, he's he remains an interesting figure in the cabinet. Uh, Andrew Mul Mulholland writes, and now Andrew, it was, this is so global. I think Andrew's based in uh, Italy. Is it Andrew? You, yeah, I kind of ring. And he says at the end, ciao. Does that provide a clue as to where Andrew is? Uh, Andrew's written some great stuff uh, to the podcast in the past. He says, it's been interesting following your recent thinking on prime ministerial qualifications. I read the last book on prime ministers and will certainly pick up the next. Thank you, Andrew. One distinction you mentioned, which I think is important, is that between securing the party leadership and actually being a prime minister uh, requires a series of overlapping skills for a specific sequence of challenges. A, securing the party leadership, B, winning the election, C, running the country, and D, winning re-election. So some attributes will be more useful during different stages of this trajectory. Yeah, it is true. Different qualifications for each of those four things. He says, integrity is, I feel more important for ser a serving prime minister rather than an aspiring one. Yeah, I think you're probably right, although it helps to have integrity or to convey it if you are an inspiring one. I think um, it's one of Keir Starmer's 
key qualifications. Depends what the juxtaposition is at the next election, but if integrity is part of it, he's on quite good terrain. Um, uh, robust intellect is required throughout, however, yeah, in all instances. I can think of a decent recent party leader still alive who always seemed distinctly low wattage. He may be one of the pair of characters you'll be including in one chapter. Ah, yeah. I think I know who you're thinking of, and I think you may be right about the inclusion in terms of the pair of characters. I disagree about the low wattage, though. Anyway, um, let's see. I'll save your next podcast for when I fly back to Britain. Oh, yeah, of course, from Italy. Last time I listened on the plane, I inadvertently broadcast it to the person in the seat next to me. Oh, wow. Well, I hope that person, Andrew, has become a regular listener and subscriber, um, having had it imposed on him or her during your flight. Anyway, have a good flight and you're on while you're listening. You feature. Um, Okay, Andrew Bimson, with reference to people in the wrong party, may I nominate Oliver Letwin? I think he would have been a perfect fit in Tony Blair's Labour Party. I know that when he was Shadow Home Secretary, he got on well with David Blunkett, who was then in office. I think they had similar policies and outlook. Uh, Letwin was to the left of the Conservative Party. I disagree with you, Andrew, actually. Uh, Letwin was an extremely, is, extremely nice person, very polite engaging, happy to discuss politics with all kinds of different people. Um, But he was absolutely uh, a Thatcherite uh, in the Conservative Party. David Blunkett wasn't a Thatcherite and Blair wasn't, although he uh, was too keen on elements of the Thatcherite project uh, in some respects, I think, uh, during his later period as uh, Prime Minister. Uh, But no, I think he was absolutely in the right party. And it was bizarre of Johnson to suspend the whip from Oliver Letwin uh, during that mad period in the hung parliament when he was first prime minister. Um, Anyway, he's not in the Commons anymore. But I think uh, Oliver Letwin is a Conservative, was a Conservative, Andrew. um, But an extremely decent, intelligent and engaging, well, there's no use to say but, lots of um, Conservatives are. Um, he 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 was very. I, I used to enjoy having conversations with him when Cameron was first leader. He used to get in touch with me a lot, and we had really good conversations. But I'm absolutely sure he was in the right party, Andrew. Thank you for that. Uh, Diane West uh, writes. I listened to your podcast today, as I do every week. Today I was sweeping the outside area where I live on a delightful. Part, uh, a finca in Gran Canaria. Banana palm, fig, olive, lemon trees, and much more. Oh, I think I'll just sit back and think of you in Gran Canaria. Um, uh, sweeping, even sweeping, and I'm jealous. Di- Diane West is writing from Gran Canaria. She says, I haven't contacted you, you before, but I decided I would because your correspondent, Lorraine Bambrick, yeah, Lorraine Bambrick is one of many correspondents, uh, raised the question of whether people with different political views listen to your podcast. Yes, they do. Um, We've just had one example already, Diane, and here's another. I told you, it's a broad church. Um, And indeed, uh, you know, I can imagine Oliver Letwin tuning in 
when I think about it. Anyway, this is what Diane says. I am, for example, a classic liberal, a fervent Brexiteer, and I lean towards Hayekian ideas on minimal government, the economy and free trade. Re-COVID, I thought right from the beginning that all lockdown measures and mask mandates were wrong, and I'm strongly opposed to any kind of coercion regarding the experimental gene therapy jab which is uh, killing and maiming people in large numbers. Well, you, you, this is, Diane, you really are showing we're a broad church here. I reckon most of us lot disagree with you on the jab. Not, I'm sure you've got some fellow Hayekians, um, and some, we know you've got some fellow uh, Brexiteers. Uh, anyway, Diane goes on to say, I did vote Conservative in the last election to get Brexit done, but I certainly won't be doing so next time. Not Conservative, not Labour, not Lib Dem, not Green. Uh, I believe there are many of us wanting to blow up politics at the moment. God, this is this is kind of big stuff in grand, you, you know, in that lovely kind of place where you're sweeping, Diane, in um, Grand Canaria. Um I actually think, controversially, I know that MPs should be paid more. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so we agree on one thing. Um, because she thinks there are no more than a handful of current MPs who deserve their seats. Um, she says, let's go for something closer to the German or Dutch health model. And that will need new MPs, better paid, more experienced. Um, and uh, yeah, well, uh, I think that's too... Uh, suggesting two emails suggesting higher pay for MPs as part of the solution. Uh, anyway, she writes at the end, it's a long email from Diane. Anyway, job done. You now know there is at least one maverick listening to you. It's great. I, th I think it's brilliant that you do. So thank you and enjoy yourself. I, you know, I, what do I keep on saying? Enjoy yourself to every email. Um, I, I'm sitting, Diane, in North London where it's been raining torrentially for about 48 days. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of enjoying it, all of this vicariously. Thank you. Uh, the next one, <laughs> this is getting silly. Uh, this is uh, from Eric Holdaway, Steve Petrie's friend. Steve uh, uh, emails uh, the podcast occasionally. And Steve and I knew each other many, many years ago. Anyway, uh I typically follow your podcast whilst working out in the early morning in my basement. Cool. That's cool. However, this week, the family and I are on a summer holiday along the Atlantic coast. So I listened as I walked along the beach on a blustery day collecting seashells. That's a, there's a photo. And that's amazing. Again, I live it vicariously, Eric. I was struck a few weeks back um, by your assessment of the difference between the UK's Tories and my country's Republicans on the issue of climate change. Eric is uh, from the US. We're back. New York, Gran Canaria, Berlin. Now we're in the US. The difference between the UK's Tories and my country's Republicans on the issue of climate change denial and how it's much more prevalent in the latter. Now, Eric gives a good reason for this. It's interesting. The reason is probably tied to the fact that so many US congressional seats are from areas with large 
fossil fuel industries. For example, 24 of the 50 US Senate seats held by Republicans are from states that produce significant amounts of fossil fuels. Yeah, that's, that is very interesting. Uh, but, and it does show the significance of where people are elected. It, it applies in the UK too. You know, the sort of Red Wall seats responded in horror with good cause when Johnson credited Margaret Thatcher for closing pits because of her concern for climate change. And that's a really interesting theory about climate change uh, denial in the US is partly because of the consequences of addressing climate change in some of the areas represented by Republicans. Um, anyway, Eric from the United States says, I very much enjoy listening and hope for an opportunity to connect to a live show when due to time difference, it doesn't conflict with work or other obligations. Next live show, Eric, September the 13th, book your ticket on the King's Place website and you can do it while you're in the basement exercising. You can uh, watch the show or a recording of it, but it, you can watch it streamed live if you book a ticket on the uh, King's Place website. Thank you for getting in touch from the US. Uh, and now we're on going to the Isle of Man and Stuart Mills. Stuart says, I'm really enjoying the podcast from over here in the Isle of Man, normally gardening while listening, very civilised. I find it interesting that when the heir apparent inherits the job, it rarely goes well. Good point, Stuart. Eden from Churchill, Callahan from Wilson, Brown from Blair, and May from Cameron. All a case of be careful what you wish for, I feel. And as a facetious aside, would you agree that if Portillo had become Prime Minister, landed the top job, he would at least have made the trains run on time? Well, he certainly de developed a passion for trains, having become, uh, I'll give you a clue, a Prime Minister we never had. And I think one of the more interesting examples of the genre. Yeah, you're right. The heir apparent is a very difficult one. Those who become Prime Minister without having been leader of the opposition, without having fought a general election to become prime minister, they tend to be what Roy Jenkins called a tail-end Charlie. Uh, it's at the end of a long period of rule, and things tend to go badly wrong. Um, so good point. Thank you, uh, Stuart. Uh, Jeff, has, Jeff Strange writes that he now listens to the podcast, uh, Eating Beans on Toast. His menu has varied because he's a regular email. It was Guinness recently. Um, do you think the BBC has been strongly advised to give us a heavy dollop of Team GB exceptionalism in their Olympics coverage? That's an interesting question, Jeff, because I was listening to another podcast that the uh, Tim Montgomery was on. Uh, Tim Montgomery, the who brilliantly devised Conservative Home when it first appeared in the sort of early era of blogging and all the rest of it. He was saying he was getting a bit fed up with it, you know, and he, he you know, kind of, uh, you, you would have thought might kind of relish the Team GB stuff. But it is, uh, yeah, I mean, um, they haven't been strongly advised, Jeff. They, they are following their sense that this is what people want. But I do wonder... It was like, do you remember a completely different example? But when Prince Philip died, you know, they dropped everything, every channel full of repetitive reflections on Prince Philip. And they actually got bucket loads of complaints. I sometimes think they misjudged the jingoism of people. So good point. But um, it, 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 they're following their own judgment. When I say they, there is no collective judgment because the 
BBC structure is too chaotic. Um, but um, I think you make a good point. Um, Claude Wright, sorry, I haven't got your surname here, Claude. What advice do you think Harold Wilson would give Keir Starmer in the context of the current political climate? Isn't it funny? Back to Wilson. Might he take it, given his openly stated admiration of the man with the pipe? Yeah, during the leadership election, Keir Starmer said uh, Harold Wilson would be a model. I've got absolutely no doubt uh, Wilson would uh, go for a sort of try and unite the Labour Party. It's doable, it's difficult, but do it. Focus on unity and then look outwards, address voters' concerns. If you look at that February 74 election interview I mentioned earlier, Wilson was very clever. It's all about prices, food prices, um, uh, work, secure work, you know, this kind of stuff. It, it, he, he knew how to pitch outwards whilst keeping a then even more divided Labour Party together. He was skillful. He had epic flaws, but he, he's it's time for him to be rehabilitated. Long overdue. Um, okay, um, uh, Brad Dodd, I always look forward to listening to your podcast. Thank you. I've subscribed to it. Yeah, do subscribe. That that way you always know it's there and then you can download. Um, it's a very intriguing subject of Prime Ministers we never had. Thank you. Get that book, Brad. Pre-order. Signed copy. Two of my favourite people who should have been PM but were not are Ken Clark, who I think of now as sitting down with a drink at home listening to West Coast jazz with his hush puppy still on. I think a lot of that goes on in Ken Clark's house. And Dennis Healy. Both of these men were very affable and had a wealth of political experience gained through being on the front benches for so long. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to be talking about those I do include in the book next time. But it poses an interesting question. If you are right... Why didn't they become Prime Ministers, Ken Clark and Dennis Healy? Thank you very much for that. Um, uh, from Stephen, sorry Stephen, I haven't got your surname here in the emails. Uh, I will check it out. But it's a, you, I've just listened to your latest excellent podcast. Thank you. And the talk of Prime Minister's advisors reminded me of Alan Walters, whose influence on Margaret Thatcher played such a large part in Nigel Lawson's resignation as Chancellor. He went, despite Thatcher's assertion that advisers advise and ministers decide. Her own downfall soon followed, the culmination of the most dramatic political drama I can recall. I completely agree with you, Stephen. I still read about her downfall in various forms, and it, it remains extraordinary. Uh, you wondered last week whether we might have worked together. Oh, yes, yeah, this is Stephen Lamb at the BBC. Yeah, okay, that's a different thing. Uh, we, apparently, we didn't. I, I, can't, I think I worked with someone who you would have known, Stephen. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, 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 the special advisor, as we reflected on last week, we, as in I think it came from an email, the chosen special advisers in number 10 tell us a huge amount about a prime minister. And Thatcher cling to Walters, a clung, clinged, clung to Walters, um, even though it led to the downfall of her in the end, because Lawson's resignation began the sequence, I think. I know it wasn't the final part of the sequence. Um, thank you very much, Stephen Lamb. Callum Walker. I think you've mentioned previously that you feel the 2017 election is overlooked, under-analysed. Uh, yeah. Um, he said, would you mind exploring that further? 
Um, is there a link with the theme of your next book? Uh, the, there is a link uh, to the book, Callum, in the blurb for the podcast. Uh, does Corbyn in any way meet your criteria as a candidate for PES PM? We never have. Well, I'll be talking about that, say, in a couple of weeks' time, Callum, but it's not. I don't do best PMs because that's subjective. I look at those who had the chance and failed and ask the question, why? Um and so I'll talk about the specific people next time. Yeah, 2017 will take a whole podcast, Callum. I, I will do it at some point. I'm going to do some co- podcasts on general elections. And 2017 was one of the most fascinating, I think, in the last 50 years. And it was underanalyzed on so many different levels. Um, the two parties, for a start, did really well together. The two bigger parties got a huge share of the vote at a time when the commentariat assumed there was huge disillusionment with the two bigger parties. Why? Uh, the role of the state was the theme both of the Tory manifesto and the Labour one. It, it was it was interesting. Um, and the result was one that no one had predicted. So that's a brief summary, Callum. Uh, Helen Gordon. I enjoyed this week's podcast and was thinking about some of the politicians who didn't make PM. Harriet Harman said recently that she should have stood for leadership rather than the deputy leadership. Yeah, I agree, Helen. I've I've heard her say that. And it would have been 2010, but she didn't. And this got me thinking about other women. Um, I'd go for Jackie Smith or Margaret Beckett. Well, I've talked about Margaret Beckett. Um, and she never stood a, a chance in that 94 leadership contest, but I think she would have been good. And uh, Jackie Smith... Well, she, of course, lost her seat. And I mean, she's now a great podcaster, uh, Jackie. Uh, But um, amongst many other things, doing grown up jobs as well, um, unlike some of us. Um, So uh, but 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 Jack Smith doesn't meet the qualification of having the chance to have become prime minister, feasible chance, Uh, certainly didn't stand in a leadership contest, etc. Uh, slightly more controversial point, are your criteria for a good PM a post hoc analysis of some of the best or better PMs or a genuine analysis of all the qualities needed? Bit of both, bit of both, um, uh, but not necessarily a post hoc analysis of the best. Say so best is subjective. Uh, what about being able to lead and manage a strong team to achieve a better government? Hugely important qualification, Helen or anticipate the future and direct the country towards the best outcomes for these. Massively important. You have to be able to read the rhythms of politics. And some prime ministers are much better at that than others, as were some prime ministers we never had, indeed. Helen says, no bread making this week, but contemplating making pita bread later on. Well, that kind of meets the criteria of bread making. I wonder how you make pita bread. Um, Let us know, Helen how you make pita bread sounds a bit healthier than some of your other rather heavier bread recipes um peter stevens uh, i just wanted to thank you for the superb rock and roll politics podcast thank you peter uh which i listen to every week without fail it really has been a lifesaver for me throughout this ghastly 18 months or so thank you very much yeah no it's been pretty ghastly so i'm thrilled if uh, you've enjoyed the podcast i also want to say that before i ever ca- came across your podcast i did read your book on the prime ministers and i have to say i enjoyed it oh thank you very much uh, all the more so as many of the points you made on the three or four of the most recent prime ministers chimed so well with my thinking. Uh, yeah, well, that oh, I, I think it helps if you agree with interpretations. Although, as we've witnessed today, there are many who disagree with things like um, uh, my interpretation of 
Brexit, for example, the hugely significant importance of the vaccine. Um, but thank you so much for that, Peter. Uh, keep on listening. Subscribe. And yeah, the, the, we've got a lot more to get through um, in terms of challenges politically and making sense of it in the months to come. I really hope we're through the worst of the pandemic um surely 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 but we don't know no one does um and finally doug fisher from manchester uh this seems to be uh oh yeah uh keir starmer could get saturation news coverage solving his uh, cut through problem he would a stroke solve his red wall brexit problem and acquire an election winning campaigner into the bargain uh, one highly motivated to deliver a victory which would humble his nemesis in number 10 can you guess what doug fisher is referring to he is suggesting that he heard me reflect or question and wonder whether Dominic Cummings is in some respects on the left of centre, which is why he's fallen out with all his Tory colleagues and his fascination with the state and how to make it deliver more effectively, I think arguably places him on the left of centre. So what about Keir Starmer appointing him, Doug suggests. Um, and uh, he says, would Keir Starmer countenance it? Would Dominic Cummings countenance it? And would the Labour Party wear it? Well, yeah, I think the answer to all those is no. Um, but it is an interesting point. I, I remain interested in Cummings. Um, and uh, he's one of those, we've talked about this on this podcast before, you know, politicians on the whole aren't surprising. Uh, but he has surprised me. Uh, his public outpourings, of which there have been many, don't conform to the caricature I had formed of him based on kind of media reports. I don't know him. And it doesn't happen that often in politics. You know, we've talked before about some people who've surprised us um, when they have acquired greater public prominence and where the caricature was wrong. Um and I, that this is an example to me. So, but no, I can't see him advising uh, Keir Starmer in the run to the election. Although, what an interesting! It was, you're quite right. You'll definitely get cut through with that one, uh, Doug. Um, if if that were to be announced at the Labour conference, anyway. Look, God, yeah, we've gone for well over an hour. Say, just you know, kind of a bit more than usual perhaps although sometimes it has gone on for more than an hour recently so just to remind you thanks for your brilliant questions sorry if i didn't read them out there have been loads and keep them coming in over the next couple of weeks we'll have another mega gathering together uh after my break so just to remind you i'm off for the next couple of weeks but keep busy listening to this podcast or back copies please order the book uh, so you can get signed copies if you uh, follow the waterstones uh, link but you know where else you can get the book and hopefully you can order it from local bookshops as well comes out formally on the first first thursday in september and if you're around it'll be great to see you at the greenwich theater on september the 12th or king's place in the main hall on monday september the 13th um just like the olden days uh real life delving deep reflections, unreliable predictions. Oh, yeah, the whole lot coming back at the start of a new political year. It'd be fantastic if you could uh, make those. And, um, yeah, a few other gigs coming up, which I'll tell you about uh, next time. So have a great couple of weeks. Keep the points coming in. And uh, do subscribe. And it will be around that kind of bank holiday Monday or Tuesday of that week that the next one will come in, where I shall be, amongst other things, uh, reflecting on 
the prime ministers we never had, the ones who do make the cut. Why did they come so close and then fail to seize the crown? Who are they? Well, uh, that's for next time with your, no doubt, brilliant questions and points. And who knows where we'll be. I say it will be moving up to the start of that new political season with the build-up to the party conferences where the stakes are so high this time, certainly for Keir Starmer and actually, I think, for the Conservatives and Boris Johnson. Thanks a lot for listening. See you next time. Enjoy August. Don't get too wet. It seems to be constantly raining where I am. But most of you seem to be around the world in sunshine. Anyway, have a brilliant time. See you soon. Thank you.